You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Imagine with me that you are a fisherman or fisherwoman in first century Palestine, which was the time and place that Jesus lived when he was here on earth. And you've been laboring long and hard on the Sea of Galilee. You've been trying to get as much food as you can for you and for your family and for your neighbors' families. And you're not particularly wealthy. Your boat's not very big, maybe 10, 12 feet long. It's got a leak in it that you're aware of, but it still floats. And your nets, they're overdue for repair, but you've learned how to rig them and make them work. And after a hot, sweaty, 10-hour-long day, you finally have to make your way back to shore. And as you're rowing your boat, you start to notice your arms. They're charred and a little leathery from being out in the sun, and your, your clothes smell like fish. It's another day at the office, really, for you. And you collect all of your fish. You throw the net over your shoulder. You walk back towards town on the road in. And as you're walking on that road, you come across a toll booth. That's how things worked in this day. So you're under the thumb of Roman oppression, which means you've got to pay the Romans when they tell you to pay them. And when you see that toll booth, you get a little angry. See, you and your family have been oppressed for more than 600 years at this point by multiple empires. And all you've ever known is Roman oppression in your life. You're sick of this. And so when you arrive at the toll booth, you're already a little bit peeved. And when you get there, you see a little man He's sitting behind a little table. He's got little eyes and just a little bit of hair that's combed over on his head. Little eyebrows angled down angrily. And on each side of him, he's got a Roman soldier who is willing and able to break your legs if you step out of line. And this little man tells you what you owe. And you realize you don't have the money to pay him, which means you've got to give him some of the fish instead as compensation. But you also can't do that because your family has to eat. And so you tell this little man that you can't pay. And then he looks at you with his little beady eyes for a couple seconds. And then suddenly, the little man jumps up on his little table. You're actually a little impressed. He's more athletic than you expected. But then he cocks his little arm back and slaps you across the face. What would you do? For most of us, the answer is really simple. We'd retaliate without hesitation, right? We have put up with oppression for long enough. Our family has been abused for long enough. Someone has to give this little man a taste of his own medicine. And that response, one of retaliation, that's actually norm for us in our culture and also throughout world history. This is how humans typically respond to pain and to hurt in their lives. We have a collective habit of inflicting harm on others when they inflict harm on us. We can call that retaliation culture. Retaliation culture is a collective habit of responding to harm inflicted upon us or others by returning violence with violence. And retaliation culture assumes that the other person, because of what they've done to me, is disposable. Because they have harmed me, I now am justified to harm them, at least to the degree they harmed me, and oftentimes to an even greater degree. And America, in particular, is obsessed with retaliation culture. We love retaliating to people when they've harmed us. You see this in how we spend our money. 
as a country in 2021, America spent $800 billion per year on military and defense, which is functionally our retaliation core. It's a way of saying to the rest of the world that if you mess with us, we have 800 billion reasons that we can retaliate. And that, by the way, is more than the next nine highest spending countries in the world combined. That's the ethos of our world. That's where we spend our money. But it doesn't just stop there. It also continues into our language, the way we speak to one another. Our political realities in the last couple years have revealed this to us. Smear campaigns are par for the course. They're norm for us. And when somebody says something offensive to me, that gives me justification not only to offend them back, but to offend them in an even greater degree than they did to me. Our institutions also are embedded with this reality. One of our greatest culture-making institutions, Hollywood, has a celebration, a big party every year. Do you guys remember what happened at the last party? The slap heard around the world, right? A joke that was slightly offensive, Will Smith, someone who advocates for peace verbally all the time in his life, decided that this moment with millions of people watching was the time to go and retaliate aggressively to someone who had said some words to him. This is an organization and an institution in Hollywood that always proclaims peace, right? That always talks about inclusivity and love. And well, one of the stars that they later awarded 15 minutes later did this in the middle of their event. And lest we just think it's them out there, we all also do the same thing in our hearts, friends. We love to hold little grudges. We love to think the worst of people so that when we inhabit spaces with them and they say something to harm us, we're ready to retaliate at a moment's notice. For most of us, the only way we think to respond to harm and injustice in our lives is to get even with others. And here's what's wild. We've been doing this for thousands of years, and we still don't have peace. Despite our best intentions to bring about retaliative justice, it hasn't solved our problems. Just hop on social media, watch TV. Don't do it for too long, because you will get depressed. And you'll see, retaliation culture is the norm, and peace is not here. It doesn't bring us peace. It only brings more and more violence. We're continuing in a sermon series here at Midtown called Non-Disposable. We're looking at the ways that our culture defines things and people as disposable, means to our own end, and how Jesus charts a different way for us, a way of non-disposability, where things and people are actually beloved by God, and that when we practice belovedness to those things and people, we actually find true life, peace, and wholeness. And today, we're going to look at retaliation culture what our world says when harm is inflicted upon us, and what Jesus has to teach us, the radical words thousands of years ago that are just as radical for us today from Jesus. So if you have a Bible, turn in it with me uh, to the Gospel of Matthew. This is the first book in your New Testament, if you're flipping there. Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be. So look for the big number 5, and then the little number 38. We're going to have the words behind me on the screen if you'd like to follow along. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, we have some on the table for you. Take one. They're a gift to you. We want you to be able to read with us on Sundays and read on your own time at home. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. 
Give to everyone who begs from you. And do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys, back in the day, uh, there was a man named Samson. If you've grown up in the church, you've maybe heard some stories about Samson's life. He was a a rough-and-tumble kind of guy. He was prone to violence. He didn't much like rules. He's not really viewed as an incredible role model for us in the scriptures. And at one point in his life, Samson decided, against his family's wishes and against the rules in his nation, to marry a woman outside his nation. So he married a Philistine woman. And shortly after their wedding, Samson got into a fight with some other Philistine men because he didn't like them very much. And the result of that fight was Samson killing 30 of them. 30 Philistine men wiped him out. So naturally, he's got to flee back home to his father's house. He's got to let things cool off for a bit. But eventually, he realizes, well, my wife is back with all the Philistines. I need to go back there at some point. I'm married to her. I want to see my wife again. And so after things cool off, he travels back to the land of the Philistines to see his wife. He goes to her parents' house. And he brings with him a young goat, as one does, right? And when he gets there, he sees his wife's father, and he's like, I'd like to see my wife. And his wife's father says, we thought you had left for good. I mean, you killed 30 people. We thought you had just like fled, and you weren't coming back. So actually, I gave her away to another Philistine man. And knowing what we know of Samson, it makes sense that he gets really outraged at this, right? His wife has been given away, and so he decides he's got to retaliate to this Philistine man. Here's his mode of retaliation. He gathers together 300 foxes, he attaches flaming torches to their tails, and he allows them to run rampant through the Philistines' field, burning his wealth, his money, his food, which, by the way, is really creative. Like, for retaliation, that's (laughs) really a creative strategy. But then the Philistine man gets word about this. And the Philistine man says, well, I need to retaliate. And he brings it up another notch. He decides, I'm going to murder Samson's wife and murder her whole family. Another nice, warm, fuzzy lesson from the Bible. (laughs) Vengeance always begets more vengeance. That's true in our day, and that was especially true in the ancient world, which means that people need structures in place to prevent personal vengeance from becoming too excessive. We need boundaries in our lives. And that is exactly what the boundary, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, was designed to do. That command in the Torah, in the first five books of our scriptures, it was contextually a way of protecting people from the threat of excessive vengeance upon them. And it actually provided a system where people who had experienced harm or injustice could come and bring that harm and injustice to a court of elders in the nation. And that court of elders could discern what the punishment was for those who had inflicted the harm. And that punishment could never exceed the harm that was originally done. That's what eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth meant. You couldn't exceed and take away the thing more than what had been taken away from you for justice. Because of that law, the punishment never exceeded the initial harm done. And by the way, that didn't always mean that the punishment went all the way up to the harm done. There were instances where the punishment was sometimes a bit different, determined by the court of elders. But an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it was supposed to be a limit It wasn't a way of encouraging vengeance or encouraging more violence. But by the time Jesus rolled around a couple thousand years later, this law was often being misinterpreted. And the vengeance that sits within the human heart was often using this law as a way to retaliate against people and create a culture of retaliation. And so when Jesus is quoting for an eye 
quoting an eye for an eye here and teaching on it, he's not getting rid of the law, and he's not saying it's a negative thing. What he's trying to do is help us see the heart behind the law. He's actually been doing this throughout much of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the sixth time he's quoted something from the Torah, the Old Testament law, and is now clarifying the heart underneath that law. Remember, he started the sermon by saying, I've not come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill it. That's what he's trying to do here. And so Jesus, when he quotes an eye for an eye and says, I say to you, he's not getting rid of justice. And he's not saying that there's not a role for societies to limit violence. He's not throwing those things out. In fact, during much of his ministry, he actually calls out oppressive institutions and societies, often for oppressing the poor and the needy and not bringing justice. So Jesus cares about justice, but he knows that in order for true justice and peace to come, something has to be done about the human heart. Something has to be done beyond just punishing wrongdoers. See, punishments for injustice are kind of like medicine that treats symptoms. And they work. Sometimes they squelch symptoms, but they don't get rid of the disease. Jesus knows that there's a disease in the human heart. And he knows that true peace and wholeness can't come until humans are reconciled to one another until there's peace between humans again. And that's actually a central part of the whole message of Jesus. That in order for true peace to come, humans have to be restored to right relationship with God, right relationship to each other, and right relationship with creation around them. That's the central message of Jesus. And so here, he's teaching on how true peace and true restoration can come in relationships. That's what he's trying to do. He's not just stopping with, well, here's what it means to bring justice on an evildoer. He's saying, how do you restore the relationships in your life. You guys, as disciples of Jesus, we never stop with the question, how do we punish the one who's done wrong? That doesn't mean that's an irrelevant question. It's a helpful question, but we never stop there. We continue on as disciples of Jesus to say, how do we restore the broken relationships in our lives? How do we bring peace between us and others? That's what Jesus is commanding people to do here. And then he says pretty clearly what you need to do. Do not resist an evildoer which may be the most difficult teaching that Jesus ever gives us. This is really, really hard. It's so hard that most people throughout history and many Christians don't practice this. We sort of ignore it. Or we think, well, Jesus is just being a little uh, wishful, right? This is kind of pie-in-the-sky spiritual philosophy, but it doesn't get into the nitty-gritty of our lives. I was speaking with a friend recently who's particularly politically passionate and active, And we were talking about how we interact with people who disagree with us across the political lines, how we approach them, how we respond to them, how we vote in our world and the like. And this friend mentioned that the only way, the only way to respond to those who disagree with us politically is to dispose of them, to get rid of them, to get rid of their ideology, to push them away. It's the only way that we can respond. And I brought up this little section in the Sermon on the Mount for him. He's a Christian. He would say he follows Jesus. I was like, what about... An eye for an eye. What about uh, this message from Jesus, do not resist an evildoer? What about love your enemies? And this is what he said back. He said, Jesus' teachings are great, but they don't belong in this part of culture. This part of culture, we can't just lay down. We can't just be passive. We have to win. We have to defeat the other. And that exposed something really fascinating to me, especially in our day, friends. People in our world love diet Jesus. We love the idea of peace. We love the idea of restoration until it actually means that we got to do something about it in our lives. Until it actually means that we have to give up our grudges. Until it actually means that I have to forgive. Then, then that's a little much. 
And the common objection we give to this command from Jesus, do not resist an evildoer, is that it's too idealistic. That Jesus, if he really knew how divided things were, if he really knew what had been done to me, then, then he'd say something different, right? He's just, well, he's giving a nice spiritual ideal, but he's not actually dealing with the nitty-gritty of our lives. Friends, Jesus is saying these words to a group of oppressed people, hundreds of them, who've been oppressed for hundreds of years. He knows exactly what harm looks like in the world. He knows what injustice looks like, and he still gives this command. Jesus is not giving some pie-in-the-sky, wishful-thinking command here. He's telling us this is what restoration looks like. This is what peace looks like. And our objection that Jesus is being too passive, that this rolling over isn't the way, that being a doormat isn't the way, it's actually a misunderstanding of what Jesus is doing here. He's not telling people to slink away in cowardice. He's not telling people to just roll over and take it. He's actually telling them to take courageous action, but to do it in a remarkably creative way. What he's saying here when he says, do not resist an evildoer, he's functionally saying, do not compete with the evildoer in their evil. Do not try to match the evildoer in their evil. He's not saying do nothing. He's saying, don't pay them back with what they've paid you. He wants us to be able to surprise the person who's harmed us. He's saying, be more creative with how you respond. As philosopher Simone Weil puts it, don't just, don't just do something, stand there. Don't just do something, stand there. And this isn't a way of slinking away and allowing them to just continue to harm you. And it's also not a way of fighting back and matching them in their evil. It's a way of confronting the evildoer in a surprising, creative, nonviolent way. And then he gives four examples of how we do this. And these examples are loaded in the cultural context of his time. So first, uh, he says that if someone slaps you across the right cheek, you turn to them the other cheek as well. Now, in that day, a, a right-handed backhand slap of the right cheek was a common way to degrade someone else. Uh, it was something that was often done to slaves. It was a way of putting you in your place, of giving you a status that's below the person slapping you. This was an honor thing, and it was a way to dishonor people. And so if you bring your face back to them, what you are saying is that your dignity has not been changed in any way by what they've done to you. That your dignity is maintained and that they have ultimately done something that reduces their dignity. You're forcing them to come face to face with the reduction of their humanity in the action they've taken and the fact that it hasn't changed you at all. You force them to see you as an equal. Think about how shocking that would be in that day. Somebody slaps you across the face as a way to degrade you and they're like, oh, man, you must be having a bad day. You need to get any more out? Right here. People will be like, what? What do I do with that? What do I do with the person who I can't degrade? What do I do with the person who's so confident in the image of God in them and the image of God in me that they're not shamed by the action that I take to harm them? That's a powerful, powerful move. This is not passive. He goes on to give a second example here. He says, if anyone sues you and takes your coat, give them your cloak as well. In the ancient world, he's talking about undergarments and overgarments, functionally. The coat was the undergarment. So he's saying, if someone sues you for your underwear, give them the rest of your clothes as well. He's saying, if someone sues you for your clothes, get naked. Give them the rest of what you got. Force them to evaluate, to understand the uh, in or undignified way they're treating you. Force them to face up to what they've done. In this world, it was also shameful to look upon a person who was naked. 
That was a cultural thing. So you're also forcing them to do something, well, realize what they've done shamefully. And it's not a way of making them feel terrible. It's a way of exposing to them, oh, what have I done? Right? And no one will want to keep fighting the naked guy. It's just true. No, if, that, if that happens, they're going to be like, I mean, what do I do now? Right? This is a creative way to respond. Uh, he goes on to give a third example. He says, uh, if you're forced to go one mile, go a second mile as well. This was another way of degrading people. In the Roman Empire, Roman soldiers would degrade folks, Jewish folks especially, by making them carry their things, reminding them of their status as lesser people. And say, hey, you need to carry my pack, you need to carry my weapons. And what would happen if you said, oh, yeah, you look tired. Could I just carry it home for you all the way? Like how many, I'll go however far you want me to go. You would resist the degrading that they have done to you. You would resist the undignified way they've treated you. They couldn't figure out what to do with that. They've done everything they can to degrade you. And you're saying, no, I'm created in the image of God. I'm beloved. And you are as well. And I'm not going to respond in the same way. I'm not going to retaliate in the same way. And the fourth example Jesus gives, he says, we need to be willing to help our neighbors in need when they want to borrow from us. What many commentators mention is that uh, there's a hint that somebody is wanting to borrow from you to take advantage of you. And he says, be willing to give to people even when their motives aren't the best. Be willing to be generous to people because generosity is a virtue. That's a good thing. Don't allow their taking advantage to reduce you, reduce your dignity. And notice, he doesn't say in the text, give whatever they ask for. That's an important thing. He says, give to them, but he doesn't say, give whatever you ask for. Augustine says that what Jesus is saying is, the practice of generosity here doesn't necessarily mean caving in on every demand that someone says of me, but it does mean being generous to them. And so Jesus, in this passage, is covering multiple ways that we can be wronged by someone else. Multiple ways that we can be wronged in our body, in our property, in our freedom, in our liberty by carrying things, wronged in our finances. And he's saying in every way, learn how to respond in a creative, nonviolent way so that your humanity doesn't get reduced and so that the other's humanity is not reduced. Now, an important point here, because this passage can be weaponized in some unhealthy ways. Jesus is not saying persist in a relationship of abuse and continue to take abuse upon yourself. If you're in a relationship of abuse, Jesus longs to protect the abused and to bring justice to the abuser, right? He would not say, don't leave that situation. But what he would say is when you leave that situation, take the work to creatively respond by not retaliating and by seeking restoration of the relationship. And it's also worth noting that in a broken world, sometimes restoration of the relationship is impossible because it takes two parties to restore. And so we just have to do the work of everything that we can on our terms, as best as is within our control, we have to learn how to respond without degrading the other. We have to learn how to respond in this creative way. There's a, a great theologian. Some of you may have heard of him. His name's uh, Martin Luther King Jr. He had uh, six principles for nonviolence that uh, were largely inspired by this section of scripture. And I thought about coming up with like all the dynamics that are at play underneath this, but I then thought, well, Martin Luther King faced a lot more than I did, and he learned how to practice this well. So I actually wanted to share those with you guys today. These are the six principles of nonviolence that Martin Luther King Jr. gave us. First, nonviolence is a way of life for courageous people. There is nothing passive about nonviolence. It takes courage to stand up to the one who has harmed you 
and to refuse to give them the power to degrade you. That takes courage. Second, nonviolence seeks to win friendship and understanding. The end game is restoration of the relationship. The end game is not punishment of the evildoer. That doesn't mean punishment is irrelevant, but the end game is restoration. Third, nonviolence seeks to defeat injustice, not people. This is a really important thing, friends. If I believe that every human is made in the image of God, then that means that the one who has harmed me has been corrupted in some way by evil. That the image of God is somehow not being represented in them, and that they've forgotten what it means to be human. And so my job, as the person who's been harmed, is to help remember who I am as a human and help them remember who they are as a human. That's what nonviolence does for us. Fourth, nonviolence holds that suffering can educate and transform. This is a really central part to Martin Luther King's story. You guys might remember the march in Selma across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. This was a remarkable turn in the civil rights movement. It was a nonviolent walk that crossed a bridge that was responded to with egregious violence, and there were pictures. People took many pictures of this violence, and they saw people who had done nothing to warrant harm being violently harmed. All of a sudden, the nonviolent response that they had educated the whole world. It educated everyone. Everyone looked at that and saw, this is not right. Nonviolence educates the world. It shows us what harm is it looks like, and how we can bring about peace in the world. It can educate us. And then finally, sixth, nonviolence believes that God is on the side of justice. It acknowledges that God's heart is one of justice, that longs to bring justice into the world and bring peace to all people. So friends, these words of Jesus here in this passage, they're inviting each and every one of us into courageous, non-retaliating responses. And when followers of Jesus have embraced these things in their lives, when they've allowed these to dictate their lives, it's brought radical transformation, radical peace and justice in a world of retaliation. It was creative, nonviolent Christians who helped to end the evils of gladiatorial slave abuse. It was creative, nonviolent Christians who helped peacefully overthrow abusive communist regimes in Eastern Europe just by walking and singing. That's actually what happened. In the middle of the 20th century, you can go look this up, go look up the Velvet Revolution. People walked in the streets, didn't respond with any bullets and any harm, and an uh, evil, oppressive communist regime was overthrown. It was a peaceful transition of power, and no fighting happened. It was one, one creative, nonviolent Christian named Rosa Parks who sat on a bus, refused to move, and she sparked, she was a catalyst to end segregation in the United States. It was her and courageous actions from a bunch of other people in their lives that helped end oppression. But those are just the big examples, you guys. Those are just the big picture, and we can only really understand the big picture when we look back on it. Rosa Parks didn't know she was starting a revolution when she did. Martin Luther King Jr. didn't know he was starting a revolution when he did. He was just one person faithfully following the way of Jesus in his context, which means we, as a community, can faithfully follow the way of Jesus in our context and see radical transformation come as well. And that starts in the smallest parts of our lives. How you respond to a spouse's snarky comment this week. How you respond to the coworker trying to one-up you. How you respond to the person who cuts you off in traffic. How you respond to the people who are degrading you online. How you respond to political opponents when they dishonor you. Those are all opportunities for us to follow the way of Jesus and bring transformation in our relationships. 
You guys, sometime this week, someone is going to do something that will spark a desire in you to retaliate. It's going to happen. So what are you going to do? What's going to be your response? What's your heart going to naturally flow out? Because when we as Christians become unoffendable people, when we become people who know the image of God in us and know the image of God in everyone else, it can break the power of sin and death in a way that nothing else can. And if you want evidence for that, just look at the cross of Jesus Christ. It was on the cross that Jesus courageously refused to retaliate to retaliation culture. It was on the cross that Jesus provided a pathway for us to have life. It was on the cross that Jesus took on death and violence and sin and defeated them. It was on the cross that Jesus exposed our sin against one another and showed us a way to be healed. It was on the cross that Jesus showed love instead of hate. It was on the cross that God's true justice came. And it's on that cross that all of our hopes hinge for any peace at all. Amen? Amen. You guys, if we as a Christian community are formed more by the crown of retaliative power and not the cross of loving our neighbors, we're never going to see transformation in our lives. It's never going to happen. True peace and true restoration come when we trust the way of the cross in our interactions, when we trust what Jesus has done for us. And if you're in this room and you're looking for healing in the middle of a broken relationship, it's there in the cross. It's here in Jesus. That's actually why we come to this table every week. We're remembering that retaliation culture is not what defines us. Retaliation culture is not what brings us peace. So might we, here at Midtown, become a creative, non-violent community that sees the image of God in us and sees the image of God in others and refuses to degrade them or allow them to degrade us. Because when we do that, we will find true peace and true restoration here and into eternity. That's what the way of Jesus brings us true life, is waiting for us. Let's refuse to live in a disposable culture of retaliation. Let's learn to be creative in our love for one another. Let's pray, friends.